Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but you are light. Now in the Lord, walk as the children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what's pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, Dressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray. Lord, would you give us faith, hope, and love for Christ's sake. Amen. It seems every day you follow the news at all, there's some new horrifying and awful story, right? Things that are just absolutely catastrophically shocking last week seem normal this week and become outdated next week. It's crazy, the speed of life and the speed of morality in which the world has changed. So last week we watched a, a movie as a family, a movie made in 1986. It's amazing to see how kind of the vision of America that existed in 1986 and the, the evils that it lampooned, the things that it ridiculed, have become the new normal, right? The great villains in the movie, the the socialists, and you're like, wow, that's actually kind of commonly accepted now. How the world is changing. It's interesting as we kind of think about this, as uh, in our case, young parents, 
and trying to raise up um, children along the way, others in the same kind of boat in the room, maybe others that are dealing with grandkids or no kids and just living in a, a very chaotic and complicated world. I think sometimes it's easy for us to almost like kind of sensory overload, just get so overwhelmed with the mess that we just kind of like turn our brains off for a little bit. Right? Do you ever have that where it's like, it's almost like you're overstimulated. We're like, there's just so much. I, I just can't handle it. I'm just done. It's usually how I am by Sunday night, right? Finish preaching, spend time, talk with everybody. It's wonderful. But by the time I make it home, I'm like, I'm going to go to the Fortress of Solitude. Just be by myself. I love you all. You're dear to me. You're special to me. I'm going to go away now. It's too much stimulation. It's too overwhelming. And sometimes the world, I think, is like that with us as we interact with the evil around us, that it's just too much. It's just too much. It's crazy. All right, I remember uh, Dick and I were laughing at this one at, at lunch today. One of the great evils of my childhood that was kind of proclaimed of like, this is the, the, the portrait of abomination uh, in our current culture was, you know, the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. Like, this is dreadful, it's evil, it's awful. And then to think that this last week, Sports Illustrated went out of business because the only thing that was keeping them open was the swimsuit edition, and this year they posted a man parading as a woman on the cover. That's the world we live in now, that we have trans folks as our portraits, ideal sexuality. It's a messed up world. Ephesians is designed for a church that's living in a messed up world. This is not one of those letters. There are not many of them in the scriptures, but it's not one of those letters that kind of exists almost in the ether where everything's kind of happy and cheerful and delightful. Philippians is much like that, though not entirely. It's much that way, but Ephesians is in so many ways kind of messy. In those first two chapters, it lays out the gospel in maybe the clearest and most beautiful and most excellent, uh, you know, succinct portraits anywhere in the scriptures. You've been saved. You've been saved not by your works, but by Jesus Christ. And because you have been saved, you have been saved to something. You've been saved from sin, from hell, from death, from destruction, to good works. You've been saved from your old self and your old nature to your new self and your new nature in Christ. Saved from one way of living into living in Christ Himself. Chapters 3 and 4 really work out what that kind of begins to look like for the church. We don't exist as individuals solely. Uh, We exist primarily in the context of unity in the body. And so chapters 3 and 4 take this kind of gospel reality and work it out in the context of a unified body. And then chapters 5 and 6 begin to put that into the pragmatics of daily life. What does it mean to live unto good works in a chaotic and messy world? It ends with, you know, we know the armor of God and spiritual warfare. We get to that. That's really wild and crazy in chapter 6. The end of chapter 5 is that great marriage passage that makes us all uncomfortable if we take it seriously. 
But this first section of chapter 5 really frames out kind of where we're headed in terms of thinking about living kind of gospel obedience in a messy and dreadful and awful world. A disgusting place. Starts verses 1 and 2, really they're a continuation of the previous chapter, but this is like, it's almost like the thesis statement that the following 19 verses are going to work out. Therefore, be imitators. Now, if you know Paul and you've studied his writings, he does use the idea of imitation with great regularity, but almost always, Paul tells people to imitate one person. It's not the Lord, actually. It's himself. It's weird to think about, and I think he uses that word, I don't know, um, three-quarters of a dozen times. Almost all of them are in reference to himself. You go imitate me. You go imitate me. You go imitate me. This is one of the very special times and certainly the most direct where he doesn't say that. You go imitate God. Go imitate the Lord. Be an imitator of God. Now, that would be an overwhelming kind of preponderous thought. Like, how how am I supposed to do that? I, I can't create out of nothing. I can't die on a cross and save other people from their sin. I can't do miracles. I, I'm not outside of time. I, what is that? What am I? How? What? And then he gives us kind of a, a word picture to explain it. Be imitators of God the way that little children imitate their parents. Right? If you've had young kids in the home, you've, maybe you remember this from your own childhood, but that moment where the, the, the daughters want to be like mom, and so they go find a, you know, one of their little princess dresses and go find mom's high heels and put them on and proceed to try to walk through the house in mom's high heels and usually eat it some point face first, and there's tears, and, and it's great fun. Right? Or the young sons that go find dad's dress shoes and try to tie the tie and end up with some noose that they're choking themselves in. It, it, it obviously isn't a very clear representation, but any parent knows exactly what they're trying to do. Right? Do, do the high heels fit? Nope. Can the child walk? Not at all. Is it a recipe for disaster and then to fall on their face? Almost certainly. But do you know immediately that's a child that's trying to look like mom? Yep. When you see the boy and he's got the tie all wrapped around his neck seven times like a scarf and it's like, oh, please don't go running through the house like that. Does he look like dad? No. Does he sound like dad? No. Voice two octaves wrong. But do you know immediately he's trying to be like his father? He's trying to look like his dad. That's really the illustration that's given to say, look, you people of God, your task is to live like your God in the same way that a child puts on mom's makeup or mom's high heels or a son puts on dad's dress shoes and tie. It's a poor representation, but anybody that looks at it knows that kid is trying to be like their parent. That's our mission. 
That's our task is as we live in a world that is increasingly chaotic and a world that is evil every which way that it's like you have to wonder like are the marketing departments of our companies just sitting around devising new ways of evil? And the answer is yes, actually, that's exactly what some of them are doing. It really is shocking. How do we live in that world? Well, <laughs> go be that kid who loves their father so much, they try to look like him. Now, is it going to be a great representation? Nah. Is it going to be a spotless impression? No. But might we be close enough that everybody else can look around and say, oh, that's what God looks like. Yeah, I think so. In fact, actually, verse 2, I think, even kind of clarifies that. Walk in love. You want to know what that love looks like? Again, here, not kind of in the generic of uh, kind of capturing the image of our Father, but now as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This, again, this, here's your illustration. Jesus has already done this. Go be an imitator of God. Now, some of us in the room, we love abstract thought. We love kind of the ether. We, we deal in those kind of very nebulous and um, kind of amorphous ideas, and the more abstract it is, the more we delight in it. Most of you are already like, I hate that paragraph, right? We don't live, most of us, most uh, in kind of American listeners, we don't live in the abstract. It's really hard for us. We live in the visuals. We, we live in pictures. We live in sight and sound and smell. We, we don't think in the abstract. We think in the concrete. God is very wise, as you might guess. And really, verses 3 through 21 is where Paul takes those kind of abstract ideas of 1 and 2 and then puts them into more specific and concrete principles for how to live. Go imitate your father. Go imitate your big brother. Man, Paul, I don't know how to do that mess. I don't know what to do. How am I supposed to do that? Well, verses 3 through 21, Michael, if you can't see it, too slow to get it, let's look at it further. Verses 3 through 5 give us really the first kind of more concrete and specific way in which we get to be an imitator of God. And this is we are to be people who love purity and avoid impurity. In fact, almost all of these are really, they're framed in avoidance. They're, they're framed in the language of running away. I'm, I'm putting them in positive to make it nice, but really it's run away, run away, run away. Verses 3 through 5 is we are to be people who run away from impurity or pursue purity. Notice verse 3. Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Now again, that word saints there is holy persons. So what he's kind of getting at is, look, here are sins, and these sins are just not appropriate to be around those that would be called holy. If you are in Christ, you are definitively holy. 
He's already made you so. You are already set aside for unique purposes. You are already set aside for God. You have His name placed upon you. You belong to Him. You have a new nature. You're united to Christ. You are already holy. Your very nature even is. And as a result, you're supposed to live that way. As a saint, as as a person who is definitively holy in Christ, it's not good or right or proper that we would have impurity around us at all. And he gives a handful of examples. Sexual immorality, that's the low-hanging fruit that easy, obviously we shouldn't have that. That's an obvious one. It's an easy one. Impurity, all sorts of filth, okay, again, that's an easy one I can agree with. Covetousness suddenly gets incredibly inconvenient. Right? One of the great American virtues. Well, I mean, really, what am I supposed to do? I've been trained my whole life to want what everybody else has so that I work harder at it. So that I can have the good life. Right? You think about how much even the way that our school system pressures our kids is so that they can beat everybody else and be better so they can have what everybody else has and they can have what they want. So much of our lives is really shaped around our longings for things outside of our station, coveting the things that others have, wanting what does not belong to us. Okay, and that one hurts my feelings a little bit. Maybe the others are easily avoided, but covetousness gets inconvenient. But verse 4, oh, it gets much worse. He takes it from those very obvious and big sins to the heart and covetousness, the invisible sins, so to speak. And then verse 4 into our very words. Let there be no impurity in your mouth. No filthiness. No foolish talk, no crude joking, which is out of place. Now, I do need to kind of parse this out a little bit. This does not mean you can't crack a good joke. That's not what he's getting at here. This does not mean uh, that uh, we're not able to uh, even kind of see the silliness of serious things. How do we know that? Well, God himself has designed uh, the world in such a way. In fact, actually, he even tells us in the book of Job, the reason why he created the ostrich was so that he could laugh at that stupid animal. I love that. That's like, oh, what a great endorsement. I love laughing at ridiculous animals. Hey, you know what? Even that's how God made them on purpose. How fun is that? That's not what's getting at here is that we don't have the ability to have a good belly laugh. Right? This is not one of those that when our little toddlers get the giggles and start just cackling, which is the best noise in the whole entire world, that we need to go like spank them and scold them for laughing. That's not what it's getting at here. What he's getting at here is is a people whose mouths are filled not necessarily even with the frivolity of the world, but with the impurity of the world. When the sin and the corruption begins to proceed from out of our mouths so that our speech sounds more and more like the speech out there instead of the speech 
in here. That's where I think it really gets inconvenient for many of us, isn't it? James tells us that it's, uh, the tongue is really one of the great, um, great problems of evil in the world. One of the great sources, we can't seem to contain it. If you can tame your tongue, man, you can tame just about anything. And interestingly here, even Paul's laying out, look, look you want to, to be an image of your father, you want to be an image of your big brother. One of the great examples is for you to not have impurity in your mouth. To watch how you speak. To watch what you speak. So that not even coarse jesting is there. Instead, let our, our mouths be that of thanksgiving. And I, I do think there's an interesting kind of connection here. Uh, it's not laid out specifically in this place, but in other parts where it does seem that in some ways complaining often mirrors the impurity. We are to be those of thanksgiving, not of grumbling, not of complaining, not of filth. All right, verse 5, why does that even matter? Why is that that, uh, this kind of run away from impurity is how we can look like God? Well, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure who is, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, is he saying that a person who's ever said a bad word is not able to go to heaven if they're in Christ Jesus? Oh boy, many of us would be in trouble, wouldn't we? Maybe all of us. No, that's not what he's getting at. What he's getting at is really the new nature That new nature that the Spirit of God has brought about in us cannot coincide, cannot coexist with this type of impurity. And if we are definitively marked by this new nature, it it can't continue in us forever. And if it is definitively a, a definitive part of our essence, this kind of evil, it's because we don't have that new nature, and that's a problem. Those that know Christ have this new nature, and as a result, these sorts of impurities cannot continue forever. They may be able to for a time, but they cannot continue forever. Whereas those in whom they continue forever, you would really have to question their eternal state. How can you know Christ if They continue like this forever. In many ways, you could think of this one um, really like uh, uh, oil and and water together. If you ever have the salad dressing, you know, where you have to shake it and you don't ever shake it and you you kind of dump it out. Um, Or worse yet, if you're one of those people that enjoys your hot dogs and you, you forget to shake the mustard or the ketchup first. Right? Do you ever have that moment, right? You pop the top off, and you're like, yes, I'm excited for my hot dog because I love a good hot and it's just mustard water all across the top, isn't it? And you're like, that's nasty. I'm going to throw that hot dog away and go find one that's good. And I don't want a soggy bun. That's disgusting. Realistically, that new nature of God that has already been given to us, that has already been worked within us, cannot coexist. It's that oil and water, it's the mustard and the mustard water. They can't exist together. They're constantly separating. 
constantly dividing. And it's weird to think that, like, in our new nature, our base state is to get away from sin. We just have the lingering corruption of sin where we're constantly pulling it back into our lives. The lingering corruption of evil. It's why we long for the life to come. You want to look like your father. You want to look like your big brother. Run from impurity. Run from it. Flee. Now, that doesn't mean flee the world. That doesn't mean circle the wagons and build some sort of little, some sort of little enclave where we're, we're separated uh, from the bad people out there. This is one of the things that has always amused me about uh, any sort of social group that circles the wagons and says, we're going we're gonna to put all the bad things out there, we're going to circle the wagons, and we're going to be on the inside. And, and I, I always am amused by that because it's the, the least circumspect, self-aware thing I've ever, any action I've ever seen done. Because the assumption is that the evil doesn't come with me and I'm not the problem. And really what it is is just pride. To say that I can circle the wagons and I can get away from the evil because it doesn't actually come with me. Instead we have Paul here laying out, hey look, your mission, if you want to look like your father, it's run from impurity. It is flee. This is, we have that great, wonderful example of Joseph who just leaves his, his just run, man. Just go. Well, it doesn't stop with that. That's again one way to go. Well, it, it moves now not just from impurity in the abstract but to people in the specific. Verses 6 through 10. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So now we've shifted from just impurity in the, in the abstract as sinful and gross things, but now we've moved to people specifically. And don't let anyone take you captive by clever and empty and evil words. Why? Because these are the things that gets the wrath of God. People who are evil and capture with their words like that, these are the, the people that get judgment from the Lord. They're the sons of disobedience. These are the bad guys. And you, as people of God, have to be careful that you are not actively captured by them. And in fact, actually, sometimes they're so good at confusing us, discombobulating us, befuddling us, that in fact, actually, verse 7 happens where not only are we not fighting against them, but we actually decide to become partners with them. where we decide that we're going to be buddies together, that we're going to be on the same team, that we're going to be business partners together. And end up actually unintentionally enslaving ourselves. And there's a great example of this actually in American church history over really the space of my lifetime, where when I was a child... And the uh, large portions of the American evangelical movement 
were deceived by the empty words of the conservative political parties in our country. And we began to partner ourselves with church and state, right, with political uh, ideologies that began to mix side by side with theological ideologies, thinking, hey, we're going to be able to be partners together. We can team up. We can do this together. Church and political party hand in hand. The problem with that is that one group was having to tell the truth because that's what our Bible tells us to do, and the other is allowed to lie through their teeth because that's what political parties do. And interestingly, what happened to the church really throughout my lifetime, we've watched statistically, numerically, every kind of tangible, measurable sense, it has been catastrophic. Right, attendance in every kind of major denomination except for, I think, three has diminished over the, my lifetime. We have generations that are lost functionally. And now we have significant portions of the evangelical movement in America that can't decide if they're going to fight for their theology or if they're going to fight for their politics. Therefore, verse 7, do not become partners with them. Why? Well, at one time you were in darkness. At one time you had that old nature. You, you played by the rules that fallen people played by. At one time you behaved the way that the unbe- unbeliever behaves, but you're not like that anymore. You've been given a new nature, and as a result, run from that kind of person. Don't, don't be deceived by them. Don't become partners with them. Instead, set healthy and appropriate boundaries so that they don't get access to your soul. End of verse 8. Walk as children of light. Try to discern what's pleasing to the Lord. I think this is really interesting. This is one of those things that I, I remember as, as a child being taught. Right? I remember it was one of those resounding things that happened in the, the church I grew up in and the youth ministry I grew up in was be careful of what kind of friends you make. Right? Bad friends corrupt good company. And one of those things that as a child you get tired of hearing and being like, I mean, sure, okay. It can't be like that important. Like, I know it's important, but it can't be that important. No, actually, it really can be that important. It really can. And the interesting thing is it's not just for kids, it's for adults. Look at who are we partnering our hearts with? Who are we kind of tying our futures to? What kind of people are we bonding ourselves to? Flee impurity. An informed avoidance of people and ideas in verses 6 through 10. Again, this is not just running from anyone and everyone. I mean, we're not, it's not the portrait of, of a, a, um, you know, a, a skittish animal that's been beaten and abused. And you know, when you go in and you see them, they, they have you know, a dog with its tail between its legs that's just constantly hiding from everyone and everything. That's not actually the portrait. This is intentional strategic defeat. I mean, a retreat, not defeat. Right? Get the right words here. This is intentional strategic retreat. This is people who are actively winning by running away from the right things. 
Right? So the rest of this chapter, we're going to see the church is portrayed as victorious every step of the way. This is not a church that's losing. This is a church that's winning. This is just the recipe for winning. Fleeing from impurity, intentionally fleeing from the people and thoughts that would easily ensnare us and entrap us. Verses 11 and all the way through 14, this is, I think, perhaps even a little bit more inconvenient for us. As now it shifts from, hey, just run away from them, to now we have to begin to battle endorsing them. Look at verse 11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. So now don't, don't join in what they're doing. Right? We've already fled impurity in the first section. We've already fled those kinds of people that are uh, going to use their empty words to kind of trap us and snare us and, and bond themselves to us. But now it's actively avoiding the evil in which they are attempting to get us to be participants. Take no part in it. And instead expose it. Right? We, we don't... We don't Fall prey to them. We're not in bondage to them. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but expose them. One of our elders here, when I, long time ago now, I guess, Eric Peterson always used to say, the person who controls the definitions is the person who wins the argument. Anytime you look at anything, the person who, who sets the definitions is the person who wins the argument. And it was one of the reasons why he was so largely politically agnostic was because he got to watch who was setting the definitions for the debate in our political sphere. It was one of the reasons why he was often rather cynical about kind of the social life of the American culture was because look at who's setting the definitions. Look at who gets to determine what qualifies as a man, what qualifies as a woman, Look at who gets to determine uh, who's in charge, what's considered loving, who we're allowed to marry, who gets to determine these things, who, who gets to set the rules. And one of the challenges right now is that we are being kind of co-opted into agreement silently. And friends, we need to teach ourselves and even our children that part of our task here is to take no part in this, but instead expose it. Why? Well, it's shameful even to speak the things they do in secret. Sometimes I wish they did it in secret now instead of public. Good grief. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Let's call things what they are. Let's term them what they are. Let's label them what they are. Let's address them for what they are. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. Boy, you could preach a month on that quote alone. Uh, What he's doing here, altering Isaiah 60 and changing it in a beautiful and wonderful way. And the challenge, though, is that we don't become participants, but actively set boundaries so that we're able to fight against it. Now, some of us in the room, that's already made us uncomfortable because we don't really like conflict. 
right? We, we, don't, we don't really like arguing. I mean, just kind of go along with it, man. It's going to be fine, man. Just come on. I'm one of those people. If I have the opportunity to ignore it, I will. I'd much rather do that. Others of you, actually, at this point, secretly and quietly in the back of your head are already like, I love it. I have permission to fight. You haven't actually said it out loud, but your kidneys are already tingling. You're so ready to go. Oh, the pastor told me to pick fights, and I'm going to do it. 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 I'm going to tell everything what it is. I'm going to tell everyone who they are and how they are. I'm going to tell them what they're doing. I'm going to tell them off because the pastor told me to. I did not tell you to. I think there's actually a wonderful kind of corrective to both of us in verses 15 and 16. Look carefully. Look carefully how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Put differently, the person who fights the wrong battles is a fool and a liability to his team. A person who is a coward and unable to fight is a fool and a liability to his team. Our task as we live in this world is to be strategic, to be thoughtful, to be careful. Now, I can use the Bible word for that. It's called to be wise, to be intentional about how we do these things. In fact, actually, if we really wanted to be kind of Careful, we could say that all three of the previous points, fleeing from impurity, intentionally avoiding the people and thoughts that would make us captive, uh, intentionally kind of fighting against the endorsing process, kind of calling out evil, all three of those have the guardrails of Christian wisdom put on either side. I mean, you think about it. If, if we just kind of, you know, if, I, if I panicked up here and I was like, everybody, just run as fast as you can. Just, you just got to run. Everybody right now, just leave the building and just run as far and as fast as you can. And everybody jumped up and just ran out the doors, some out the back, some out the side, some out the side. And everybody just took off running as fast as they could, as far as they could right now. What would happen? Would it go well for us as a congregation? Probably not. I'd actually be doing a couple of funerals, wouldn't I? Because somebody would make it into the road behind us, and at this time of night when it's dark around that corner where you can't see, unfortunately, a car would come around and somebody would lose their life. Because they were fleeing carelessly. Now, that's not helpful. It, it's not helpful to just pick up and run so far. In fact, actually, it's one of the devil's great tactics where if he can't push you one way, he'll pull you the other. And if you ever learned to wrestle against, I learned to wrestle in college with my roommates. It was the, the great tactic of the smaller man. That's what I was. I grew late. And so I was often wrestling guys much larger than myself. And the trick was push as hard as I could until they got their weight shifted and then yank as hard as I could. And hopefully I could throw them far enough to get away faster than they could catch me. Right? The wrestling tactics of an obnoxious underweight. That was me. 
using their their balance against them, pushing and pulling to try to keep them off kilter. And so often the devil is doing that to us. And so here in verses 15 and 16, you have the Lord saying, look, you've got to flee, but it has to be done wisely. You can't just take off running. Because if you take off running, what you will do invariably is you will run from one imbalance into another. You will run from being a liability in one fashion to being a liability in the other. You'll give your session a headache in one way, and then you'll go directly into being a headache in the other. Look carefully. Look carefully how you walk, living not as unwise, but as wise, being thoughtful and intentional. Again, you're not just running away from ideas and people that could capture us. The easiest way to run away from ideas that could capture us is to defeat them with good biblical thinking. To understand the Scriptures so fully and comprehensively that the ridiculous ideas that the world could offer are laughably false because my God has already destroyed them. Live carefully. Be strategic. I've, you know, I've heard me wax eloquent, and that is, boy, an overstatement, about my love of strategic board games. Men's retreat... Half the time, the weather is absolutely dreadful, freezing cold and wet, and if that's the case, I'll have a board game that we can play in some fashion. Um, But I love that, and particularly for my family, to try to teach my children that same idea of like, look, in these games, I'm called to be strategic, figuring out how to spend my resources in the best way possible to accomplish the best end for what I want to get. And it's interesting that when we interact with temptation, so many of us just turn off our critical thinking and turn off our strategic brains. Just go running willy-nilly wherever. Instead, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Right? Void impurity and informed avoidance of people and thoughts that would make us captive and avoiding endorsements and participating in evil. But then now, a kind of transformative thought of being strategic. But honestly, all of those are kind of framed in the negative. Run away, run away, run away, run away, run from something. And then now, at the end, the, the run to is presented instead. What are we supposed to fill the the emptiness with? What are we supposed to fill the void with? Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. He's not just doing this so that we're confused, hopelessly cast adrift. It's not like that story you see every summer at the coast of North or South Carolina where somebody hopped on their raft at the beach and got pulled out in a riptide and then suddenly spent 12 hours out at sea in a little... uh, ten dollar you know floaty hoping the sharks don't get them and they can't swim back in because the currents are just too strong they don't know where they're going it's just wherever the currents take them now instead we be intentional learning what the will of the lord is which is to actively verse 18 avoid evil and instead verse 19 fill our mouths with song Rather than it being filled with evil or coarse thought or even complaint, our mouth is to be filled with the songs of Zion. Psalms, hymns, 
spiritual songs. Most likely, those three terms are three variations of the different types of psalms in the Psalter, two of them being probably psalms of praise, one being a song of uh, sadness, lament, or need of some kind. Instead, singing and making melody to the Lord in our heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence. What are we supposed to be? We're supposed to be those people whose hearts are so filled with the presence of the Lord that our mouths are constantly pouring forth the praise of God. And I think that's so intriguing. That's one of the ways we protect ourselves. It's one of the ways we protect ourselves. In fact, actually, we could even say it further, one of the ways we protect our children How do we pass the faith on to the next generation? There's a lot of ways to do it, but interestingly, one of the big ways is to teach them to praise correctly. It's a protection for our heart, a guard, and a keep. Now again, this is the sweet mercy of the gospel and why this is where it comes in this part of the book. Will we be 100% successful at this? No. Will we probably be 50% successful at this? Honestly, probably not. Maybe 10% successful, or maybe, I don't know. But going back to that opening illustration of the child walking in mom and dad's shoes, you know, grabbing dad's blazer, putting it on, you know, the sleeves dragging on the ground, even though it's a poor representation, it's an adorable one. And the parents love it. Even though we will be a poor representation of our Father, He will delight in it. That's a fun thing to think about, isn't it? That He delights in it. For those that are parents or grandparents, think about how much joy you've watched from your children or grandchildren being those silly gooses that are you know, doing that how much, much happiness and gladness we've seen in it. And I think that is just a small reflection of the way the Lord delights in us. He loves us. He loved us before the foundation of the world. He loved us before Christ came. He loved us before the cross. He loved you before you were born. He loved you before you were saved. He loved you before today, and he will love you into eternity. Guaranteed by the death and, erection of, death and resurrection of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are so generous, that you find pleasure in our very poor imitation. And we pray that you would make us to be a little bit more accurate a little bit more zealous, a little bit more loving, a little bit more obedient, and grossly more wise, wiser uh, in all of our ways, that you would be pleased and honored and glorified, and that we would thrive and flourish for your namesake. Amen.